this week on the Back Table Podcast. Regarding the position, you know, if you look at your CAT scan and you plan your puncture on your CAT scan, imagine you have an under-rotated kidney. Let's say, for example, you have an obese patient and there's a lot of perinephric fat. And, you know, as you know, sometimes the kidney is a little less rotated posteriorly. Then you know that because your puncture is going to follow the infundibulae, you can know exactly where it's going to come out. So in a case where you have an under-rotated kidney, your puncture wire will come out less posteriorly. And when you position the patient, you need to boost up their hips and their shoulders less. Conversely, if you have a very over-rotated kidney, for example, in a patient with very little perinephric fat, a very low BMI, then you may have to boost their hips and their shoulders a little bit more. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Backtable Urology Podcast, your source for all things urology. You can find all previous episodes of our podcast on iTunes, Spotify, and at backtable.com. Now, a quick word from our sponsors. RevivireX, providing urology-specific sterile and non-sterile combining services to the specialties of urology and fertility since 2016. They currently work with over 500 urologists in 36 states, servicing over 200,000 patients live. They pride themselves on service, quality, and innovation. Products like their ICI injections are lyophilized to provide temperature stability to allow for shipping, easy of travel, and fewer incidences of priapism compared to premixed formulations. Products RevivaRx produces include HCG, FSH, Trimix, Trimix Gel, libido enhancement for men and women, hormone replacement, and over 80 unique urology-specific compounds. All pharmaceuticals produced in our facility follow federal guidelines for sourcing, compounding, and dispensing. Find them online at revivarx.com. That's R-E-V-I-V-E-R-X.com or call 888-689-2271. Orders may be faxed to 888-689-1620 or sent electronically to RevivaRx Houston. Now, back to the show. This is Jose Ochesilva as your host this week. We are happy to have as guest this week, Dr. Jason Weinberg. Dr. Weinberg did his urology residency at the University of Manitoba, then continued to do a fellowship from the National Cancer Institute. He's the Director of Endurology at NYU Langone Health. Dr. Weinberg specializes in complex kidney stones. This includes percutaneous nephrolithotomy, where his clinical research has helped to make this procedure safer. Furthermore, he has patented a new PCNO system that we will talk uh, about that later. Uh, Dr. Weinberg, Jason, it is a pleasure to have you as a guest today. Welcome to Backtable. Thank you, Jose, so much. I just wanted to uh, clarify that... uh, it's an honor to be at NYU. I'm in at the Brooklyn site, so I'm not for the entire organization. I'm the director of endurology for Brooklyn. From Brooklyn, so okay. Yeah. Uh, how's, how's Brooklyn? Every time I hear of it, there's new stuff going. I mean, in general, just, just the community is it's, it's, it's getting more modern. It's vibrant. It's, yeah. it's very dynamic. Great, great. So how do you become interested in PCNOS? Well, I, my family and I moved to Detroit, Michigan, Dr. Santucci was the chairman, and they did not have a kidney stone surgeon, and they had a large volume of stones. 
in my residency was rich with uh, endourology experience. So even though my fellowship was in cancer, the clinical opportunity was in stones. And that's when I embarked on my PCNL journey in Detroit. So this was prior to going to NYU. So right after the fellowship, you went to Detroit with Dr. Santucci? Essentially, yes, that's right. How long were you there? Nine years, nine great years. Good, good. Yeah, yeah. that was beautiful. So just because of the volume, it was, uh, uh, I mean, it was available and then you started doing them. Yeah, but PCNL is a very interesting case. So it was a intellectual challenge to conquer and learn what's really a complicated and fascinating operation. So when I had the opportunity to absorb those cases, I was excited to do that. Yeah, for me personally, I mean, a PCNL was the probably the defining surgery that, that got me into urology. I couldn't believe that you were navigating in the calyx and, and, and the, the, the renal system and just breaking stones. So I, I do hold, I mean, I don't do that much. I maybe do three or four a month, but it is something that, that I truly enjoy. It feels like, it feels like a video game. It is. And, and that's probably what, what, what got me in. Yeah. So, so Jason, what are your criteria for a PCNL in terms of, of stone size? For me, it's not just the stone size. It's also the patient's wishes. I really do discuss with them. What would they rather have? Two staged procedures or one procedure? Sometimes somebody's got to go out of town and that would push us toward a PCNL where you could go both ways. Sometimes a stone, you know, you have a sense if it's a very hard stone or a soft stone. I don't really use a size criteria and I typically will give a good effort doing a ureteroscopy laser because as much as a PCNL can be done safely, generally speaking, if you can do a ureteroscopy laser, in one or two cases, sometimes it's a fatigue assessment because if you're going to spend hours lasering a stone, then boy, oh boy, that's fatiguing. And do you take how, how few units into consideration or the stone density? Yeah, partly. I mean, I would say mostly size and configuration and patient wishes. I really do speak to the patients and say, look, you know, there's certain risks you get with a PCNL, but I think they're acceptably low risks or we could just laser you. I think patients are really good partners in making those types of decisions. Exactly. And what patient you wouldn't offer a PCNL? Or is, is there a patient you wouldn't offer a PCNL? I think so. I mean, I think, all, I think we all think the same way. It's really, we all hate risk. So if somebody looks like just a bad PCNL candidate, somebody who's massively obese, sometimes it's easier to just say, look, I'm just going to laser your stone twice and, and make sure I'm not going to embark on something where you have like truly a massively obese patient, you know, you can see that on the CAT scan where the kidney looks very small compared to the size of the patient. Yeah, I, I, I do the same. And, and I guess sometimes I start doing the ureteroscopy, but then those stones maybe don't break. So sometimes you end up just doing the PSNL at some point. Exactly. And, and you feel more comfortable converting the patient after you've really tried to do it from below. A, a, exactly. Definitely. So Jason, are you doing your own access? Yes, I, I only do my own access. I don't do anti-grade access. I frankly never developed that skill. Going back to the Detroit Medical Center, I spent a day with a world-renowned educator for anti-grade puncture. I spent two days and I absorbed everything I could. And I came back and I succeeded my first case, got urine from my first puncture, but the wire fell out and I ended up not succeeding. And I had to wake the patient up. And it was at that moment that I recalled my residency program, which is where the endourologist was Dr. Dennis Hosking in Winnipeg. 
And he used to use the old Cook Lawson set. And so my entire residency experience was doing retrograde access in the supine position. So when I was in Detroit and I had the opportunity to capture this line of business and I was 0 for 1 with my anti-grade experience, I just sort of went back to my experience as a resident and said, you know what, I was doing them successfully as a resident in that other way. And so that really started a journey to continue with retrograde puncture. And can you describe how, how do you do it supine and, and the process, how the patient is positioned for a retrograde access? Sure. The first thing is it really all begins in the clinic with a CT scan review. I prefer looking at the axial images because I can assess the renal rotation over rotation, under rotation in the axial images. And so I study not only the stone configuration, but I try to assess the directionality of the infundibulae and obviously the perinephric fat and the rib renal relationship. Is it a high kidney, a low kidney? Is the 12th rib attenuated or is it very big and long? And so you can essentially get a very good sense of the procedure you're going to conduct while you're still in your clinic making a recommendation to the patient. What you don't have at that moment is a retrograde pilogram, which can affect your surgical plan significantly. And the data from a retrograde can be acquired either at the time of a stent placement, you know, days before your PCNL or at the time of the PCNL. And so the decision making for my puncture is really the assembly of the CT scan information and the retrograde pilogram. And additionally, a flexible ureteroscope in the kidney. So those are the three domains of information that get assembled into a plan for puncture. And you mentioned that the patient is supine while you puncture them? Yeah. There's nothing wrong with doing a retrograde puncture prone, but there's benefits to the supine position in that so much of the planning is CT scan driven. And of course, the CT scan in, is acquired with the patient in the supine position. So when you study your CAT scan and you're programming your mind and you have the patient in supine position, that data translates to the operating room better than if you put the patient prone, where that information has to be rotated back in your mind 180 degrees. So that's the one of the big benefits of the supine position. It's also more amenable, of course, to access to the urethra. If you use lithotomy, whatever method you use to access the urethra, whether you use the elephant stirrups or other methods, it's a little bit easier, I think. I mean, in my hands, but other people have other experience, of course, to access from below and above at the same time. Essentially, patient is positioned supine with some folded sheets under the hips and the shoulders. It's the Bart's flank-free position with the ipsilateral arm over a pillow over the chest. And essentially, I put a ureteral access sheath in like for ureteroscopy, shoot a retrograde, and then put a flexible ureteroscope into the kidney. And your positioning of the ureteroscope is direct vision and pilography. And when you add those two fields of information to your CAT scan data, you know what you're going to do. And then there's a puncture wire that is advanced through the working channel of the ureteroscope. An assistant does it, a nurse or a resident. You don't need skilled assistance for that. And the puncture wire is shielded in a tip protectors, like a, a long, thin Teflon catheter, so that while the ureteroscope is held in position for puncture, that 
puncture wire devices advance through the uh, working channel of the ureteroscope until the tip emerges out of the ureteroscope and you see that under direct vision on endoscopy. And once that comes out, the assistant will unlock a pin vise, which allows the wire to be advanced. And then under the surgeon's verbal direction, the assistant will advance the wire with a very few fluoroscopy shots. You can see the wire advancing through the flank and you can follow that along the wire advancing with the C-arm by moving the C-arm laterally, AP only. You don't use multi-plane C-arm, it's just single plane. And when you see that the wire is tented the skin, I typically have my assistant hold the handle of the readerscope while I leave from between the legs and go around the side. And usually you see the, the skin tenting and it's consistently in a good location. And you cut the skin and capture the wire, and then you, you, you've achieved a puncture. And then you just start dilating over the wire. Yeah, I mean, the puncture wire is stainless steel, and it has a propensity to kink. Oh, okay, okay. So it's designed for puncture. It's not really designed for endourology. Oh, okay. So at that point, you just go through a couple of steps to exchange that puncture wire for a endourology wire of your choice. And that's done with a separate catheter at the flank. And I understand that you develop a system for this and you have a, a trademark patent going on. So is that what you're using right now? It is. NYU was kind enough to allow me to use this product in my practice. And your kit is the entire, I mean, it, it includes also the dilators or is just the puncture until you get a, a you have an endoyuri wire there? It includes the sharp puncture wire and the sheath that protects the wire so it doesn't damage your scope. It also includes what's called a coaxial micro-introducer, which is basically a 30-centimeter long, five French, it's almost like a vascular catheter with an inner dilator that tapers right down to the puncture wire. And the purpose of that coaxial micro-introducer is simply to allow you to remove your puncture wire in favor of an 035 or 038 endourology wire while maintaining the track that you've created. So the kit includes those two items and whichever endourology wire, sensor wire, or any wire, frankly, you can pass that through the outer catheter at the flank once you remove the puncture wire and the inner dilator from a coaxial catheter. It's hard to describe it verbally. You almost have to see a video and then it makes sense. No, no, but, but, but I'm definitely, I mean, you, you create a, a great picture of going in through, through the kidney. I mean, and for, for patients that have big stones, does it matter? When I say big stones, like, I, like if you cannot pass the uteroscope all the way into the calyx. I would say that nine out of 10 of those cases, if you look at the calyx that's at the end of those big stones, nine times out of the 10, the calyx is collapsed around the stone, which means that the urine that's produced is draining. When you don't have hydronephrosis or dilated calyces, then almost always with a pressure bag, your flexible ureteroscope will get a, a sufficient distension to allow you to drive right beside the stone to the papilla. So nine times out of 10, big stones, cast stones, staghorn stones are not only not more difficult, but there's even an advantage that people have experienced. And that is that if you have a very hydronephrotic kidney, the intrarenal anatomy is a little less supportive of the ureteroscope if it's very dilated. 
And so as you advance the wire, the reader scope can push back a little bit until it meets some renal architecture that will support it. But if you have a big stone there, like a staghorn, once you position yourself in your chosen papilla, the stone provides tremendous support for the scope. And so the puncture actually becomes easier than you might think, becomes a very easy puncture. So staghorn stones in general are a favorable finding for this. Now, of course, if you have very dilated calyces showing that it's truly a very obstructive stone, then it's possible you have to laser just to get past it. But that's not very much lasering. It's not not to disrupt the stone. It's just to, you know, allow you to advance your scope. So, yes, so sometimes with those big stones, even through the anti-grade axis, it can be challenging. I mean, the wire might not go in. It might just stay in the same calyx. It might not go down to the ureter. So I understand what you're saying. How do you say, okay, I want to develop a, a, a system? How, how did that happen? That's, thank you, Dr. Silva. You know, the same evening that I failed in my anti-grade ECNL, the patient was fine, but I wasn't used to waking up a patient and apologizing for a procedure that didn't happen. I was in my office. I think everyone had left and I was just recalling my residency and, you know, I, I, I guess different thoughts and ideas were coming and the idea of putting it through a ureteroscope came to me. And, you know, from there, I called the rep for the Cook-Lawson puncture set and took out their wire and it did manage to emerge from the ureteroscope. And then I knew I had a real idea. What's very interesting, Dr. Silva, is that in 1989, Dr. Larry Munch actually published that very same procedure of putting a retrograde puncture wire through a flexible ureteroscope. And that was a paper in the Journal of Endourology. What's interesting was PubMed was not indexing the Journal of Endourology at that time. And so to this very day, if you know the reference for the paper, you can order it through your library. But if you go into PubMed, I believe it will not pull up. And so his innovation in 1989 was lost to the urologic community for many, many years. What's also interesting is at the same time that, you know, at the Detroit Medical Center, we were doing an IRB on this idea. There's a Dr. Kawahara in Japan who was doing this exact same thing. So Dr. Kawahara from Yokohama, Japan, at the same time, we were, we were publishing the same surgical modification of the old concepts. So Jason, in terms of the procedure per se, or, or the the using the kid using the retrograde fashion, is there a difference in terms of safety uh, or bleeding in terms of the patient? I can speak from my experience, and I can speak from some anatomic concepts. When you have a ureteroscope that is staring at a papilla, the ureteroscope is in the infundibulum, and if the infundibulum is two or three centimeters, or whatever, fifteen millimeters to thirty millimeters in length that infundibular long axis has three coordinates X, Y, Z in space. And so when your ureteroscope is in that long axis of the infundibulum to allow you to stare at the papilla with your ureteroscope, your flexible ureteroscope has matched perfectly the infundibular long axis. It's the ureteroscope that creates the safety. It's not the papillary puncture. And because your ureteroscope is matching the long axis of your infundibulum. The wire that travels through the working channel 
matches the long axis of the infundibulum. And all of the series of exchanges that follow, which manifest with a balloon and a nephrostomy sheath or mini perk set, those will always dock into the infundibulum matching the long axis, which means that from a surgical experience aesthetic standpoint, there's always certainty that when you take your balloon down and you remove it from your sheath, for example, there's different technologies, of course, mini perk, et cetera. You just don't see blood come out. You see air, nothing. It's dry. Maybe you get a bit of urine. And so I think that the renal trauma is diminished by virtue of that. Of course, it's a papillary puncture, but it's more than a papillary puncture. It's a papillary puncture that's aligned with the infundibula. Now, of course, there's other ways that you can have bleeding. Just because you ask about bleeding, if you have, if you over advance your balloon and your sheath, you'll get bleeding. And of course, if during your nephroscopy, you can cause bleeding. But from a tract creation standpoint, I think this is a superior method of nephrostomy creation from an anatomic standpoint. Let's go back to your kit. With a lot of help from a lot of people from different industries and different knowledge bases, we did succeed in having a kit produced. But Dr. Silva, I would really stress that it was in the spirit of service to my urologic colleagues and community because I felt because we were doing cases in parallel to the development of the product, I felt this, of course it was exciting, but it was also a sense of duty to make sure this was available for the evaluation of other people. Of course, my experience is one person's experience is never definitive because all science has to be reproduced and reproducible. Otherwise it isn't real. So ultimately the goal was to get this to a place that other people could either validate or refute what was my experience. And so that's been the rewarding aspect is the collegial and camaraderie associated with sharing ideas with my colleagues. And I mean, if somebody wants to get that ad kit, how does it work? There is a website that people can go to, to request it. There are representatives that educate and onboard people into the program so that they can comfortably and safely do the procedure. I'm just curious. I mean, so, so you have an idea and who do you go to talk to make it happen? I mean, you mentioned there's a lot of people, uh, it takes a lot of people to get it developed, but is there a, a single comp or somebody that you can tell them, hey, this is what I want? I mean, does that exist? We were essentially unfunded. And when you're unfunded, you take the leanest possible way to move things forward. If you have funding, then it's much easier. It's much easier to partner with companies that will work with you and develop everything and take it from A to Z. But this process was very different. It was times with progress, times with non-progress, times with working with some people, times with leaving those people and moving on to other people. But through that period of time, we were again encouraged by the success of the procedure. So it was a lot of little things that just kept moving forward and a lot of people guiding and advising who are in the medical device industry. But all of those information, steps of information and knowledge were at points where there was a decision point or a problem or a question. And so it was constant curiosity and, and 
people helping and answering questions. And, and, and how long did it took to have a final product? It took years. I would say probably seven years. And the goal was not that. The goal was much shorter than that. The benefit of the long time was that the product was iterated, designs were improved before commercial release, before it was actually released. And so thankfully, since that release, there haven't been any changes needed. So, so let's go back to the retrograde procedure. So, so you mentioned you, you have an exit sheath. What size do you use? Well, the kit comes in a fixed size. Are you asking what the dimensions of the kit are? No, no, the, the access sheath per se. The ureteral access sheath? The ureteral access sheath, yes. I think that's similar to ureteroscopy for all practitioners. So some use 1113, some 1214. It depends on uh, whether the patient's been pre-stented. Are you asking about length? So uh, it doesn't matter, your, no. your, your kit doesn't matter whether doesn't you have matter. the, the, the 1214 no. or the 1113, okay. No, it doesn't matter. And what ureteroscope do you use? It can be used with any ureteroscope, although, you know, there is a learning curve of a, of a few cases. And during your learning curve, it would be wise not to use a $20,000 a high-def digital ureteroscope because while you're getting a feel for how the wire is handled, it is possible to make a handling error and effectively deploy the puncture wire inside your working channel and your scope will fail the leak test if you do that. But after you get a feel for how the product is used after a few cases, the risk of that happening goes way down. But a disposable ureter scope is, is just a good decision okay. for this procedure. So once you get the puncture wire out, then you said that, that you advance an, an access sheath? So once the puncture wire comes out, it's a wonderful euphoric feeling. It's a great feeling. What you see is the skin tenting. We typically mark the posterior axillary line and the 12th or the 11th rib. And so you can see when your puncture wire comes out below the rib and behind the posterior axillary line, it's a very wonderful feeling. What you see is the skin tenting. So you use an 11 blade, incise the skin and capture the wire. At that moment, what's good practice is to pause and go through your CAT scan. Now, of course, if you know your anatomy, if you've already programmed your mind, you already know what you have and safe, but it's not a bad idea. You, can, you have all the time in the world. You just go and take a look and you scroll down your CAT scan. You can see your puncture on the CAT scan. But once you've decided that it's a perfect puncture, then you're done. You have you created your nephrostomy tracks. Theoretically, you could advance your balloon right over that wire because you have your tract, of course. But because we prefer, I mean, I use a sensor wire. I prefer a sensor wire. We use a catheter at the flank to exchange it. So the, this catheter is loaded over the wire at the flank. So you draw out a puncture wire about 30 centimeters, just with your hand, gently. The ureter scope is still at the papilla. So there's no real danger. You're just pulling it through the ureter scope at the papilla out the flank. So it's very safe. And then you load this coaxial catheter over the puncture wire that's out the skin. And uh, then you clamp both ends of the puncture wire at the back end of the coaxial catheter at the flank, just so that you have control over things. And the wire that's still above the import of the ureteroscope, so that you have, you're not going to pull your wire out, basically. And then essentially, you advance your coaxial while you bring the ureteroscope down. 
And then what, what you have is your coaxial catheter goes horizontally in the kidney. It curves down the UPJ and ends inside the ureteral access sheet so that when you take out your dilator and your ureteroscope, what you have are two things left inside the patient, your ureteral access sheet and the coaxial catheter making a right angle turn down the ureter into the upper third of the ureteral access sheet. So when you put your new wire in at the side, it's channeled through and comes out the urethral side of the ureteral access sheath. And then you have through and through, through and through access. And then is the patient at some point is prone after this or, or you do the, the perk, same position? Same position. It's a single position. You know, it works great. Regarding the position, you know, if you look at your CAT scan and you plan your puncture on your CAT scan, imagine you have an under-rotated kidney. Let's say, for example, you have an obese patient and there's a lot of perinephric fat. And, you know, as you know, sometimes the kidney is a little less rotated posteriorly. It's a little more horizontal, just slightly. Then you know that because your puncture is going to follow the infundibulae, infundibular long axis, you can know exactly where it's going to come out. So in a case where you have an under-rotated kidney, your puncture wire will come out less posteriorly. And when you position the patient, you need to boost them up, boost up their hips and their shoulders less. Conversely, if you have a very over-rotated kidney, for example, in a patient with very little perinephric fat, a very low BMI, sometimes you see that, then you may have to boost their hips and their shoulders a little bit more or slide them to the side of the bed. So once you um, plan your puncture and your position based on the CAT scan, you don't have to reposition. You've, you almost imagine a three-dimensional box of your working space from the flank skin. And so long as you have the right angles to get to your stone, then there's no need to reposition. And for patients that, that might need a, a multiple axis, will you go in, let's say you, you do one, one part of the kidney, Will you go in with your scope again and do the same thing again? I have done it. It's easy. There's no technical reason not to. I do think that, you know, when you have such a big stone and you're working for a while on the one stone through a well-selected first access and you have access from below to do ESERs, you know, you put your reader scope up and laser and you can shovel stones out the sheath just with a 1.9 French zero tip basket with your, your reader scope and a flexible nephroscope. Normally, you don't have to do that, but for cases where you really do need it, um, there's no reason not to. I think it becomes a matter of, you know, have we worked long enough? Is today the day to do this? Do we really want to do a whole other puncture today? You know, it becomes that type of game time decision making, but there's no no reason not to have done it. That's no, not a problem for me. And I completely agree. I mean, I, yeah, I'll try, I will try to use the nephroscope and the flexible nephroscope and, and trying to prevent another puncture. And if, if, if I had to go come from, from the bottom and do a, a something small for the upper pole, then I'll do it rather than just going on with another puncture and risk complications, lung damage, something like that. What situation would you need to abort your procedure? Or, or is there a different situation from retrograde with an integrate that you will have to abort the procedure? Abort. Boy, it's I, I'm having trouble thinking of an abortion of, of an aborting scenario. I mean, I can tell you some of the punctures that are the most difficult. I mean, I I can recall a case 
that was a successful case, but it was, I'll, I'll just describe to you, it was very difficult. This was a lady with, with absolutely no intra-abdominal fat, and it was a right-sided case, and she had virtually an intrathoracic kidney and a full staghorn stone. And the space between the tip of her liver and the paraspinal muscle behind the kidney was only 15 millimeters. And the pat, and she had a nephrostomy tube placed because she presented initially with sepsis and, and she had a tube placed. But on review of the coronal CT scan, the nephrostomy tube did like a W shape through the parenchyma. And so were I to have dilated that tract, I would have basically ripped off part of her kidney and I didn't want to do that. And so what we did in that very difficult case was we found what we thought was a good window in the lower pole and we punctured out and we really studied the CAT scan very carefully and the, the angle and the trajectory of the infundibular long axis. And we thought for sure, we're going to, for sure, we're going to miss the liver for sure. But because the space was so tight, once the wire came out, we captured it with a clamp and I had an ultrasound technician just put the probe on the skin and follow the puncture wire into the kidney. She was, she was skinny, so it was not very far. And the ultrasound tech showed this is tip of liver, and you see there's fat there, and then you see your wire going straight into the kidney. That was a very challenging case, but that was one very difficult case. But I think another domain of cases that can be very difficult, if you have somebody who's massively obese, massively obese, then advancing the wire through like 20 centimeters of fat, sometimes the wire slows a little bit and it can be sometimes like a little challenging to get the wire to come all the way to the skin because the distance is so far. And so sometimes you're, you can take a, a tonsil and just push on the skin and go, oh, there it is. And those are the most extreme difficult cases, but even a standard patient with a BMI of 40 or 45 generally poses no problem. It's really when you get to the radically obese that you can have a harder time. But I think in both of those complex cases would be complicated integrate as well. Exactly. Definitely. Do you usually put a stent afterwards or an nephrostomy and, and for how long? Because these are generally a clear view when your nephroscope goes in, it's quite a pleasurable experience that you have no intrarenal collecting system bleeding consistently. You can really work and get as much of the stone from your access site as possible. And so the vast majority of our cases, we have exhausted the potential of the tract that we created. If for some reason we had to abort the case, which frankly doesn't happen, but just to show the other side, and you say, well, there's so much potential in this tract left and I just couldn't do it, then I would want to keep my access. But the vast majority of the time, the tract has been maximized and exhausted, the potential of the tract. And so my personal practice is to remove the sheath. And, you know, there's no named vessels where we puncture. It's just there's no no named vessels, meaning they're just small, small vessels that for the parenchyma that, that is behind the papilla. And so I use a 24 French nephrostomy sheath in almost every case. And so it's a fairly small renal injury. And I normally just pull the sheath out and then close the skin with monocryl 
I do put in a stent and a foley, and then in PACU, I can know exactly what's going on with any bleeding or no bleeding or a little bit of bleeding. And then I'll often leave them there for a few hours and make a judgment. If the urine is light pink, light peach color, like no blood at all, and the case was nothing, then I would send them home. And I, I think I send home most people the same day. With the foley and the, and the stent? I'll take the foley out. The foley serves really just as a, as a window, so I don't have to have a visit to the patient and have no idea because there's no foley. <laughs> so the foley is just really a tool for me to know what's happening. So during the procedure, while you're closing this, the back, the patient still has the, the exit sheath, the urethral exit sheath. No, what I know, you mean, how do I actually exit? So let, let's say you already pulled the, the nephroscope out and, and the sheath and, and you close the skin. At that time, does the patient already has the stent inside? Well, what I usually have a juncture where I have two wires in, where I have a wire from below. I stent from below, just like if you're on call putting a stent in a patient with a urethral stent. So through my urethral axis sheath, I throw a second wire into the upper pole. And the beauty of that is I know that my stent will have nothing to do with my nephrostomy tract. Because you know at the end of a case, if you do an anti-grade stent placement, it can be very annoying if you don't know if you're in the, in the tract or not. But by throwing a wire up to the upper pole from below, it's just a simple stent. And so I'll, I'll have one point where I'm exiting where I'll have just two wires, one wire up in the upper pole and one wire going down. And I'll remove the nephrostomy wire inside of a urethral catheter just to make it smooth and easy. And then I only have one wire in for my stent. And then I just, you know, put a, put a regular stent with a cystoscope in and a foley. Interesting. And, and, and for the urologists out there that, that, that are not familiar with or, or haven't trained, or I guess, for example, for me, I haven't done any uh, retrograde cases. I train anti-grade and that's what I do. What do you recommend? How, how can we go and see you? Something like that? Sure. Of course. Yeah. I mean, sure. There's, there's several people who are doing this uh, around the country that, that are, are more than happy to uh, teach. And, you know, I think that uh, it's worth noting that uh, every urologist that's doing PCNL is, is bringing tremendous amount of skill and uh, knowledge to the case. And it's not just the access, it's the, it's everything that follows that, the, the that the uh, tract create, like the, put the balloon, the sheath, the, the nephroscopy, the lithotripsy. So, you know, tremendous respect for everybody who's doing PCNLs. And the reason I, I'm partly saying that is that just because this, this kit and retrograde technique can allow a less experienced endourologist or a general urologist to do PCNL, it's very wise to partner with somebody if you don't have experience doing the second part of the procedure, because there's lots of risk that's managed by skilled surgeons doing PCNLs. There's lots of people doing the retrograde access. I think the learning curve is really two, two domains. The first domain is the careful CT scan study and planning and assembling that with a retrograde. So you really have a confidence with what you're going to experience. And, and I think the second thing is just wire handling, and that takes a couple of cases. So there's many surgeons who have a proctor come to them. There's many surgeons who go and see somebody. But I, I think that universally we have people with very good experiences. So Jason, a a anything else you want to add? No, I think it's this is a pleasure speaking with you, Dr. Silva.
No, nothing. Thanks for being here. And, and if 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 somebody wants to to use your kit, I mean, how, how was the website or, or how can they access it? Yeah, the product is called Retroperk. R e t o Retroperk. R e t r o p e r c. There's a website and ways to contact. And there's there's uh, people who support new surgeons and train new surgeons. And there's surgeons who are willing to speak on the phone in the evenings, just colleague to colleague and, you know, discuss their experience. And, uh, we're happy to have people come and observe. And, uh, I think it's, uh, an exciting time. Great. Great. So, so retroperk. So just Google it and, 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 and Google it. Yeah. Yeah. And if not, you, you can always find you in social media and, 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 and send you a text or something. And I would like to thank uh, Rodrigo, Dr. Rodrigo Donalicio. He was actually the one that reached out to us and, and, and gave us your, your info to do this. So, so thank you, Rodrigo. I would like to echo that thanks to Dr. Donalicio de Silva. I went out to Denver and he's a very intuitive endourologist. And he, before you know it, was advising on his concepts and understandings. And he's a, a wonderfully ethical and talented surgeon. It's really an honor to have met people that I probably otherwise wouldn't have met. So thank you, Dr. Donalicio de Silva. Perfect. So Jason, thanks again for being back table. Mm -hmm.